0: Let me just give you a, a brief snapshot of what uh, my life is going to consist of here for the next couple of weeks, along with five other individuals in this church. want you to be praying for us. I'm leaving on uh, Saturday for Africa. Uh, we have had for a number of years a uh, pretty thriving uh, ministry that we've been a part of and in Sanjay, Africa. In the southern part of Africa, a very, very um, impoverished region. As so much of Africa is, pretty remote region. But we have a relationship there with a church called Cornerstone Malawi. They named themselves uh, after our church here, the ministry we've had with them over the years. And Reverend Pafet Chamanika. And he has it. you know the planning of churches is just a in Guatemala, where we minister so often uh, with mission trips and in africa it 's a just an incredible process, a quick process how churches are planted, but through pastor chamanika 's church there and in sanjay malawi twenty five churches over the past several years have been planted, and we we just want to continue to find ways to support them. We haven't been there in four years, and so part of what this trip is about is I'm uh, I'm going down. uh, Jesse Glosser, our missions coordinator, is going down, and Cody Carpenter, we're just really going to be doing an assessment of the ministry there, uh, trying to find out how we can, in an ongoing way, be a help and encouragement to them. Uh, Certainly don't want to hinder them in any way. um, And then do some leadership training with the various pastors that are there, a little bit of that while we're gone. Taking my two sons and Cody's taking his taking his daughter along and they're gonna be doing some practical hands on stuff with the families there kind of agriculturally and with the vacation bible school and so I'm just asking you to be praying. It's about a I think it takes about six days to get there and back. We're gonna be gone for two weeks, so we'll only be in, in Sanjay there for about a about a week. But I'm just asking you to pray that God Spirit would just fill us with His power in order to do what He wants us to do there. Would you do that? Open your Bibles to John chapter 12, please. <clears throat> if you have been here for a period of time, you know that we've been in a long study through Paul's letter to the church at Rome. We're not going to continue that this morning, uh, last week being Easter, um, we had a Obviously spoke about the resurrection and then me leaving at uh, the end of this week. It's kind of a standalone message here. And so what I want to do is I want to preach you, speak to you from John chapter 12 verses 1 to 11. And what I want to do is I want to take about half the time this morning, excuse me, and I want to turn our attention on uh, this passage, the first 11 verses of John 12, in which we see a picture of a small group of believers who are making a big impact for the kingdom. Not, Not everything is perfect in this small group. It's actually a biological family, Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. But I believe what is within this story, though they are not perfect, What is within this story are some characteristics of greatness. Characteristics of what make a group of believers powerful and effective for the expansion of the kingdom of God. And so, first half of this message, I want to just go fairly quickly through this story and draw out some characteristics that made them great and then apply them to the group of believers today like this group of believers. This family, though it's not biological, it's spiritual, it's eternal, and what will make us great will be the same characteristics of great impact that we see in this small group of believers in John 12. And then once we have went through that, then I want to take, if I've got time, the second half of the message, and I want to then transition into a state of the church address and just talk to you about Cornerstone and where we're at, what I believe God has been doing, and what I believe God uh, is calling us uh, to in the future. John chapter 12. It's really important that we get a little pretext here, a little context to the story. Because right before John 12, something incredible happens. I'm not going to preach it, but I need to state it, read it quickly, so that you can understand the setup for what happens in John 12, because it feeds into the story in a powerful way. John chapter 11, 43 and 44. In this passage, Jesus is standing outside of the tomb of Lazarus, his close friend. Lazarus is dead, wrapped up in burial cloths, mummified, put into a tomb. The stone is sealed over the entrance. And he has been there in the Middle Eastern heat for four days. And by the statement of those who were standing around when Jesus told them to roll the stone away, they said, by this time, he stinks. He's decomposing. But Jesus demands that the stone be rolled away, and that's when we pick up the story in John eleven forty three and 44. When he had said these things, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet were bound with linen strips, and his face was wrapped with a cloth, And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jump down to verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs, and if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. In verse 54, Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. So an incredible miracle performed in John 11. And that's the setup to John 12. Let's read the first 11 verses. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for $300? denarii and given to the poor he said this not because he cared about the poor but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag he used to help himself to what was put in it jesus said leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial One of the other reliable ancient transcripts rewords that or words that as in this way, for she has kept it for the day of my burial. Verse 8, for the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. <clears throat> okay, so let's look now at this group of Christ followers, this family, and try to pick out or pick out five different characteristics that really made them great, that gave them a significant impact in their world. And here's number one, and this is true of church families, if they're going to be great they must experience radically transformed lives in order to be great you must experience radically transformed lives john chapter 12 verse 1 six days before the passover jesus therefore came to bethany and lazar where lazarus was whom jesus had what is that radically transformed would anybody say mm, you know mm. You kind of, you know, now it's radical transformation. Radical transformation. Lazarus went from grave clothes to a dinner robe. That's pretty radical. Lazarus went from lying on a cold slab alone in a dark room to reclining around a table with warm food and a bunch of close friends. That's radical transformation. Lazarus went from total bondage, being mummified, to a new, vibrant life. Radical transformation. Jesus, the author of life, had called out across the threshold of physical death, and his words infused life into a dead, decaying, rotting body, brought it to life, brought it to wholeness and gave it the energy and the will and the mind to get up and come back out across the threshold of death. But listen, that picture of radical transformation, I say to you, is nothing compared to the radical transformation that happens every single time Jesus Christ calls out across the threshold of spiritual death into a spiritually dead heart and calls that heart to new life, that spirit to new life, to an awakening of the reality of who Christ is and infuses them not just with physical life but with the very presence of the living God in them. That is a far greater radical transformation every single time. It is not even comparable. It's not even comparable. Just one proof I mean that's, I'm sure that is obvious to you if you're a believer. But let me just make it plain maybe you're not a believer. Let me explain the difference here. You see, what Jesus saved Lazarus from in John chapter 11 was physical death. What Jesus saves every person who puts their faith in him from is the cause of physical death. That is a far greater transformation. Romans chapter 6, verse 18, believers have been set free from sin. What are the wages of sin? The wages of sin are, and if you've been set free from sin, then you've been set free from, that's it. You see, death has no hold, has no sting, has no power over the believer anymore. Death actually becomes the threshold for eternal life. It becomes the threshold for something far greater than this right here. Lazarus was dead. Jesus called him back to physical life. But what happened at some point in the future with Lazarus? He died again, didn't he? Physical death overtook him. Yes, Lazarus was radically transformed, but every person who places their faith in Jesus Christ in a far greater, a far more lasting, a far more powerful way is radically transformed when Jesus Christ calls them from spiritual death to spiritual life and puts within them his very own spirit and a life that will live beyond the grave. That's radical transformation. So the point I'm making is this. That group there in John chapter 12, they were... Wonderfully impactful for the kingdom. But I'm saying to you that they were three. We are seven or eight hundred in Cornerstone Church who have received a far greater transformation than Lazarus received on John 11. What kind of an impact can we, should we, must we have for the kingdom of God? Great churches experience Radically transformed lives. And that radical transformation includes at least three things. Let me just give them to you quickly. Number one, freedom from the past. Your debt is paid. You are free from the guilt of sin. Period. You're free from the guilt of of your sins and the principle of sin. Sin no longer has any hold over you anymore. You are free from the past once and for all. The past cannot hold you. Number two, there's not only freedom from the past, there's strength in the present. There's strength in the present Yeah, it was a radical transformation, Jesus of Lazarus. He didn't just bring him to half physical life, did he? He gave him a whole new, brand new, vibrant physical life. And when you are called to spiritual life, he doesn't just kind of give you half. He gives you everything. He who not only, he who gave his son for your salvation how will he not also along with him graciously give you all things scripture says it's all yours if you've accepted jesus it is all yours you didn't get half of it you got all of it and that all of it includes strength for this present life not just a hope of something better in the future it's that you're supposed to be living heaven on earth right now i mean you have that power the very power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is available to every believer, so there's strength in the present. Second Timothy one seven, God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and of love and of self discipline. You see, the past can't hold us and the present cannot defeat us. If you're a believer, and then number three, that transformation includes hope for the future. Hope for the future. Nothing is going to take that future away from you if you're a true believer. Nothing. The hope of God means that the future is not going to disappoint. So that's the first reality. I see that in the life of this family. There was radical transformation that gave them great impact. And I believe that that is true for the family of the church today that what must be true is there must be radical transformation, and in fact, there is for everyone that is saved. Number two, great churches and that great family, they kept Christ central, kept Christ central. John chapter 12, verse 2, so they gave a dinner for Jesus there. Why did they do that? Because Jesus Christ had defeated death for Lazarus. He was worthy of the praise. He was worthy of the honor. He was worthy of the dinner being served where he was the focus, where he was the centerpiece, where he was the leader. He was the one being honored. And I say to you, if our transformation is so much greater, who should be the centerpiece? Who should be the focus? Who should we keep central in the life of this church right here? And the answer is, it's God's son. It's God's Son. Jesus Christ must stay central if this is going to be a great church. Jesus Christ must be exalted continually. Jesus Christ must be the leader, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, and the chief shepherd whom we follow. If we're going to be a church with great impact that's going to have to be true. Number three, this family and great church serve served with great power. Serve with great power. What makes a team really great? Think about a sports team here. I think what makes a sports team really great is not just or even primarily one great player. What makes a team really great is when there's a great player, but then there's a team around that player that knows how to work as a cohesive unit together for the advancement of the team for the win. And what I see here in the life of this family is that very thing. Let me just point it out to you. And the illustration, the parallel in the church today is this. In the family of Lazarus, what we're going to see here is that Lazarus and Martha and Mary, each one of them served according to their design according to how they were wired, according to what their passions were. They were capitalizing on how God had put them together. And the parallel for the church is this. How we're going to serve in great power is that as each one of us discovers how god has put us together and we capitalize on that we utilize those spiritual gifts what's going to happen is that the power of god is going to be released through that and here's why because a spiritual gift is actually the spirit of god that is living within the believer to work in a certain way to testify to the person of christ A spiritual gift is not the believer alone. A spiritual gift is the Holy Spirit in the believer working in a certain way through that believer. So that if it's the actual spirit of God working, that's power. New Testament says that when we use our spiritual gifts, what happens is that the grace of God is being dispensed in the church. The grace of God changes people. It Changes a society. It changes hearts. So what we need to serve in great power is to find out how we're put together and wired and to be using uh, those giftings. Look at this family here. First, we have Martha. Martha, chapter 12, verse 2, just two words. It says, Martha served. Martha served. Martha had a heart to serve. Martha was one of those ladies that looked for the needs around her, and when she saw them, she moved in to meet those needs. It was her way of expressing her honor to Jesus Christ. She was a helper. She was a servant. She was working in the area of her strength. Martha was a laborer of love. She was a laborer of love. Now, I'm not saying Martha was perfect. None of us are perfect. If you know the story very well, there was some griping and complaining going on in Martha's heart who was thinking everybody else needed to have her wiring, her gifting. They needed to do just what she was doing. Every one of them needed to put on the same towel and get engaged in the same duties. But you know what? So often, that's the way that we operate. We see things from our perspective only. But don't miss the point. She was serving. She was serving. She was doing what was her divinely created inclination to do. And she loved to do that. I believe with all of my heart, she loves to do that. Matter of fact, if you look throughout the Gospels, you'll find her, I think, two additional times and by the time you hear about her the third time, she's not complaining anymore. She's, not, she's just serving out of the joy of her heart. But here Martha is serving. She was a laborer of love. I think that there are a set of gifts, spiritual gifts, that we could put under the heading gifts that express God's love. Gifts that have some of the same characteristics as the heart of Martha here. I'll just read a few of those. You know, 1 Corinthians 12, um, Romans 12, Ephesians 4. You can look up, um, among other places, some of the listing of the spiritual gifts. But gifts like serving and mercy, healing, helps, intercession. These are gifts that express the love of God in very practical, tangible ways. So Martha served. Next is Lazarus. Chapter 2, last part of chapter, I mean, verse 2 of chapter 12. Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Now, don't get confused. Don't get confused, guys. It's not your gift to kick back at the table with Jesus while everybody else serves. Okay, that's not your gift. I know some of you have made it a calling, but it's not your gift. Why was Lazarus recognized? Why was his life an impact? John chapter 12, verse 11, on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. If Martha had a, I think I can explain this to you eventually here. If Martha had a heart to serve, Lazarus had a heart to share. And a heart to share. His life and his words were a testimony for Jesus Christ and through his great strength heaven was populated. Through his powerful witness heaven was being populated. People were coming to Jesus in numbers because of his life and his lips. You see it says in Verse 9, that many came not just because Jesus was there, but because they had heard about what had happened to Lazarus and they wanted to see for themselves. And then two verses later in verse 11 it says, and those people when they left, they believed not just because of Jesus, but because of Lazarus. Now, what do you think? I'm gonna, I'm drawing an implication here, but to me it is foolproof. What do you think Lazarus was doing between verses 9 and verse 11 to the people that had come to see what had happened? Do you think he was just doing this? No, he was engaging this. He was talking about what Jesus Christ had done for him and the explanation that cooperated with the exhibition of his life produced the result that many people said man i believe now you see lazarus was a powerful witness for god there's a set of gifts that expand god's kingdom spiritual gifts now i know in reality all gifts are used to do that. I'm not downgrading any and upgrading others, but I just see this as a, as a kind of an overarching statement about a group of gifts that would fit similar to Lazarus, gifts like apostles, prophets, teachers, leaders, pastors, evangelists, wisdom, knowledge, tongues, interpretation of tongues, encouragement. These are gifts that proclaim gifts, that the proclamation is used to expand the kingdom of God. And then finally, there's Mary. Verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. You know what that was for Mary? That was an act of worship for Mary. That was an act of lavish worship for Mary. It says that it was worth, a little bit later in verse 5, 300 denarii. You know how much that is? Equivalent to a year's wages. 75,000 bucks she dumped 75,000 dollars out upon the dusty feet of Jesus and for Mary not a cent was wasted not a cent was wasted there is no waste in lavish worship that was worth every penny and infinitely more if she could lavishly express her worship to her Jesus you see the strength of Mary she was a glorifier of Christ Gifts that exalt God's glory. Gifts like giving and miraculous powers and miracles and faith and music. That was a church that served with great power. That was a group of believers who served effectively because they were doing what they were designed to do. Churches today that serve with great effectiveness are going to be churches filled with people who discover what God has invested in them and maximize it for the kingdom of God. Number four, Great churches not only serve with great power, they witness with great power. They witness with great power. Verse 9-11, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. You see, this small team serving with great power was also witnessing with great power. Expanding the kingdom. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a fundamental truth that God wants his kingdom to G-R-O-W. Jesus Christ is not satisfied with us for and no more. He's not. He's not. Jesus sees every hopeless, dying soul. God the Father counted them in acts on a number of occasions. 3,000 were added. The number of men grew to 5,000. He cares about Numbers because numbers are souls. Finally, great churches inspire great sacrifice. Let's look at Mary again. Verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But some people don't like lavished worship. Verse 5, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Verse 7, Jesus said, leave her alone. Leave her alone. She kept that for the day of my burial. The Word of God, it is so insightful. (laughs) It is in ways beyond what we can imagine. The the more that we study and the more that we look, the more that we see, if you're willing to do that study, the truth of the Word of God. Here we are 2,000 years later. Do you know what one of the most common battles in the church is over? Worship. Just like John chapter 12. Not worshiping in the way that I want to worship or that you want to worship. Here's the whole problem with that. It's not for you or I. It's not for you or I. It's for him. It's for him. And what he sees and what he hears is the music of the heart. Whether you're singing a contemporary praise song or a Gregorian chant, he wants the heart, an overflow of the heart. And here's Mary. She's just looking for the chance to lavishly express her praise and worship to God, Jesus Christ. I believe great churches are passionate about lavishly expressing their worship and praise and adoration to Jesus Christ. I think the Father likes the churches that brag on His Son all the time. Because the few times in Scripture where God Himself from heaven ripped heaven back and spoke, guess who He was bragging about? The baptism, John the Baptist baptized Jesus, and God the Father ripped heaven back and started bragging on his son. Man of transfiguration, God the Father ripped heaven back and started bragging on his son. So that's five characteristics of that. Great little body of followers of Jesus and the impact they had and some parallel statements about what will make us as a larger family, a spiritual family here in this day, great. It'll be those characteristics. Now, what I want to do for the last part of this message is I want to just zero in right here on Cornerstone Church and talk to you for a few minutes about the state of the church, the state of this church. First of all, our present right now, here's the question. What has and is God doing? What has and what is God doing? I'll give you two things just really quickly. Number one, we are growing. We're growing. We're growing numerically, and I believe that we're growing in spiritual maturity. God is passionate about both of those. He's passionate about his kingdom growing. I'm not saying that God is radically um, passionate about transfer growth, just kind of the sheep shuffling from group to group. I'm I'm not saying that that's even wrong in itself. God positions people in the body as he determines. I believe there's times when God does that. But I do know that God is passionate about his church growing, about the kingdom growing, heart one heart and one soul at a time through redemption. And that I'm passionate. I know that God is passionate about us becoming more like Jesus Christ. And we, I believe, are experiencing both of those types of growth, just numerically, just quickly. 08, average about 275, 09, 310. 2010, 400. 2011, 425. 2012, 530. First part of 2013, 615. God's bringing people here. It's bringing people here. Folks, now, th- this is not a negative at all for churches to do. I'm not saying that. I'm just trying to make a point here. We're not like doing mass mailers. You know, we're not trying to, you know, do really creative things or, you know, advertising or or gimmicks that would get people in here. We're not doing that. God is bringing us people to minister to. We have a responsibility with that. The, The greater our reach, the more responsibility we have to steward those under our care. And I believe that spiritual growth is taking place. I, I, I know it's a passion of our elders, a passion of our pastoral team, and so many that I talk to, not to just be satisfied, I'm saved, I'm in, I'm going to make it. Oh, praise God, let me just hang out. No. To be finding out what Jesus wants, to be developing the heart and character of Jesus in increasing measure, that's spiritual maturity. Believe that this church is focused on that it's a privilege to be a part of a group like that that's one aspect of what god has and is doing number 2 we are focusing and refining not only are we growing we're focusing and refining we have been in a process for over a y- over a year now <clears throat> as elders as pastors we have been zeroed in on matthew chapter 28 18 through 20 Great commission, Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded. Surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. There is a two-word mission in there. Jesus said, here is what I am calling my followers to do. Make disciples. Make disciples. We have as elders... And as pastors, been relentlessly asking that question, how do we effectively make disciples? Disciples who, obviously, people who are lost, who have to come to faith in Christ, that's baptizing and then growing in spiritual maturity. That's teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. And so what we've been doing, are currently right now doing, is we are, every one of us as pastors are looking at everything that we do and with the group in discussions and in prayer together saying, okay, here is one of my responsibilities. How am I making a disciple here in, in this area of responsibility? Here's how I see it. Now you speak into my life. Don't hold anything back. Tell me if you think that I'm effective here. And what we're trying to do is evaluate honestly under the leadership of the Spirit of what those things are and when we come up against something that we see really isn't making disciples that we just want to cut it off. We want to say, I don't want to do that. I want to find out what will be effective at doing what Jesus has called us to do. About a year ago or so, we as elders begin to really look at the question how are we going to effectively do that kind of church wide as a as a central key piece of our ministry, and what we believe that God led us to is that has to happen that discipleship takes place within community within community and so we studied and read and prayed together and really are working on developing an implementing a brand new paradigm and have for the last six months of life groups that look very different than what they used to look like here. Life groups used to be a group of believers that came together for a topical study for a short period of time, say six weeks, seven weeks, eight weeks, around a theme, and then they would break up, take a break for a while, and then find another group of people to get together with and do a thematic study, you know, 90 minutes, one night a week for six to eight weeks, I'm not saying that good things did not come and still do come of that. But what we need to do is do life together. We need to develop relationships with each other because in order for true discipleship to happen as the way that the biblical model portrays it, that that happens within biblical community. It happens as the one another's of Scripture are being done I'll talk to you about those in a minute. And so we are focusing and refining around those two words, make disciples. And in reality, we're never going to get there. We're always going to be going there, but that's where we need to be going. So that's our present. What are our challenges? As we stand here today, what are our challenges? Here's the question. What stands in our way? Here's one thing that stands in our way, and it's really a list of things. Cultural paradigms. Cultural paradigms stand in our way. There are things within our culture, and it's not that we uh, try to be antagonistic to the process of making disciples at all. We are just within a culture with paradigms that are so deep-seated that those paradigms fight against the disciple-making process outlined in Scripture. Let me just give you one. And then I'm going to take a chance here, and I'm going to ask you to give me some. Here's a cultural paradigm that causes a current that goes against our ability to make disciples. Consumerism. We live in a consumeristic culture. It is everywhere that we look, all the media that we participate in, video, magazine, things that we read, the culture is, what is in this for me? That we engage in things to receive something from them. And what I'm saying to you related to this paradigm is that is not to be the focus in the church of Jesus Christ. You are not to be singularly a consumer. Should you be blessed and nourished and fed in the church? Absolutely you should. But your mindset going in is that you're to be a contributor, not a consumer. You have a part to play in the body. You have something to give to the body through the giftings that you have as a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, Scripture says this, you do not belong to yourself. You belong to one another. You're not your own. Now that's a tough word to hear to some hearts but that is the reality. There is no Lone Ranger Christian experience in Scripture. So, consumerism as opposed to contribution. So let me ask you, did this in first service, had two or three great paradigms that were mentioned that are so clear in our society. What would you say is a paradigm that in our culture that really fights against her Comes against the uh, the process of us seeking to biblically make disciples. Anybody want to shout one out? Individual. Who said that? Yeah, Rich. Oh, that's a that is like top shelf Alaskan reality right there. You guys know what I mean? This is the land of the pioneer. This is and folks. I can say this kind of with a smirk because this is Brad Souter through and through and through and through. Here was my dream from five or six years old, I'm not kidding you, up until several years after I got into the ministry. Here was my dream. I wanted to strap my my Bowie knife on. I wanted to turn my head to the hills. I wanted to go as deep and as far back into the hills as I could and just me and my knife, you know, leaping out of the branches on the wild game, you know, slitting the throat, just, you know, teeth, you know, I, I mean, just the Tarzan picture, right? That's Brad. I mean, really, just give me nature, give me the critters and let me... Be self-reliant, I don't need anybody, I can survive, independent, yeah, pioneer, yeah. Is that biblical? Church, is that biblical? Oh, my word, that is so unbiblical. That is, independence, no. Interdependence, absolutely. We, we not only belong to each other, we need each other. We need each other. We need community. We are open and exposed alone. We're wolf bait alone. I'm sorry, but that's the reality. We are wolf bait alone. We need other people around us who can see what we can't see, who can watch our back, who can speak the truth into our lives that need to be spoken into our lives. That's just the way God designed it. Give me another paradigm. (laughs) These are the same ones. These two right here are the, the two, exactly the two that were given for service. Did you hear what he said? Busy. Here's what we in our American culture do. We believe significance runs parallel with how much stuff we've got stuffed on the calendar. That we live lives with no margin. We are going as fast and as furious as we can and get as many things into life as you can and that that invades every aspect of our lives. You know that there are just a lot of parents that believe that their, their parenting Whether it's good or bad is contingent upon how many things, how many nights a week they have their kids in extracurricular activities. What happens when we live that kind of a life, you just tell me if this is true. I know that we are all in one way or another on that, kind of in that paradigm, kind of sucked in by that. But tell me if this is not true. What happens if you live a life, pedal to the metal, no margin, what happens is your life is a bunch of little compartments. There's this thing and this thing and this thing and we try to slice out just enough time to give to each one of those and we frantically run from one compartment to the next but that's what they are is their compartments and in the midst of all of those compartments there's one little slice called church. There's one little slice called the family of God. Now folks Don't misunderstand me. I'm not asking you to bring your sleeping bag down here and live here 24 7. I don't want you to do that. But the reality is the church, do you know what that is for you as a believer? It's your identity. It's not a compartment. It is who you are. You are the church of the living God. You're a kingdom of priests and priestesses. It's not a compartment of your life. It defines your very existence. That's the biblical model. It's not to be given a slice of your time. Your life is to be centered around the relationships and the community and how they flow into and out of this thing called the church of the living God. That's your forever existence. Now, that doesn't mean, oh, you're gonna be doing that forever so you don't have to worry about it now. No, right here, right now is practice for there. That's, that's what's going on. You're getting ready for there. You're to be living on earth as if you were in heaven. It's the call of the believer. So one of the great paradigms that fights against us making disciples and becoming disciples is that we don't have any time for deep community. And discipleship happens best and it many times only happens within deep community. That's one of our challenges, and that's a list of three paradigms, and there's, we as pastors spent about two months just talking and discussing and praying over that. We came up with nine paradigms that we really saw as huge paradigms. And by the way, the three that were mentioned here were at the top of the list. Here's another challenge of what stands in our way or what could stand in our way. It's maintenance mentality. Explain that. What happens as God begins to bless and a church begins to grow and the influence begins to expand and the, the infrastructure around that ministry begins to grow and become substantive, the danger is this. That the church or the leader or leaders can develop a maintenance mentality that there is more to protect now, more to guard now, more to fund now. And so eyes get turned inward. And I want you to know I am asking. And listen, I say that because I have seen it. I have witnessed it in many leaders, many pastors, as their church grew, that used to be whatever the risk was, it didn't matter for the sake of the expansion of the kingdom to, man, I got to get a tight grip on this thing or it's going to crumble. We were never meant to hold it. It's God's job. pray that God would not let me, let our leaders fall into a maintenance mentality that whatever God asks us to do, calls us to risk, tells us to pursue, that we wouldn't say, man, we got too much to protect to risk it. I don't want to do that. Here's a third challenge. And by the way, Judas is kind of a picture of that maintenance mentality. Who was Judas looking at? Judas was looking at Judas. Judas looking at self. Don't do that. Don't lavish this over here, man. We had we to keep that don't be squandering that. That's not a good investment. Number three intensifying opposition. I mean, do you see that in the story here? The more popular Jesus got, what were the Pharisees saying? Man, we got to shut this guy up. The closer Jesus got to the cross, the more intense the battle became. Listen. The more our influence grows as a church, the more impact that we have, the more lives that we're touching, the more heated the battle is going to become. It is just a matter of sheer strategy. The enemy has limited resources. He has a certain number of henchmen that do his will. And what he is, is a great strategist. He knows his stuff. He understands the battle. And he strategically positions and comes against the places where he is encountering the greatest losses and that are the greatest threat to his kingdom. Any good general does that. So, we just shouldn't be surprised that as our influence grows the opposition is going to rise. Let's go now to our trajectory, number three. So we've looked at our present. We've looked at our challenges. What about our trajectory? Here's the question. What must we be doing? What must we be doing? Number one, we must live transformed we must live transformed. Verse 9. I mean, look at Lazarus' life. Lazarus' life was a dead guy, now alive, pretty transformed. A life that everybody could see. Wow, that life changed. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe that when Jesus calls across the threshold of spiritual death, speaks life to a soul, to a spirit, brings them into spiritual life, and then gives them the power to live that life as it ought to be lived, to live a life of heaven on earth, that there is an arresting of attention to the people around that life. There is an attraction. There is a notice. People turn aside to see what's taking place, just like they did in John chapter 12. I mean, a life that is truly living, radically transformed, meaning a life of holiness. That does not just mean, I used to think holiness meant what you didn't do. that's almost nil of the aspect of holiness holiness is proactive holiness is being like Jesus Christ in what you do and what you say and how you treat other people and how you think how you live what you desire what you pursue holiness is proactive and lives that are lived that kind of a transformed life the world around those lives they are arrested Their attention is gripped. They turn aside to see that kind of a life because they know it is out of this world. It is beyond the ability of a human to do that. And that grips their attention just like they knew it was beyond Lazarus' ability to unwrap himself and get up off that cold slab and step out of that tomb. What must we be doing as believers? We must be living transformed lives in the power of the Spirit of God. And then number two, we must proclaim the truth. You see, there's verse 11. Verse 9, they not only came to see Jesus, but they would heard about what Lazarus, what, what had happened to Lazarus, and they came to see Lazarus. Then verse 11, they believe not just because of Jesus, but they believe because of Lazarus. They believed because here was this proclaimer of truth that was saying, Jesus radically changed my life. You see, these two things go together. We live a powerfully transformed life. You know what that does? It builds a platform for us to speak a powerful message. It gives us the right. It gives the ear It grips the attention so that they're focused in so that what is said by the life that is living in a way that is otherworldly, it validates itself. What must we do? We must live transformed holy lives and we must be radically committed to proclaiming the truth. I want to tell you a comment. I, I hope you don't misunderstand me. I, I want you to know that what I do up here, I know it is not me. I know that it is not me. Oh, if you could have known me 20 years ago. I was the most introverted, shy guy that I have ever met. Just put me in front of a firing squad instead of put me in front of five people to say anything. I would have chosen the firing squad every single time. But here's a comment that is regularly said past several years, and I don't just mean this about me, but everyone that preaches from this pulpit we're committed to this. They come here, they begin to come here, and they say, oh, it is so refreshing that you're actually opening the Bible and teaching from the Bible. And folks, when I hear that, let me just tell you what, that, what thought process goes through my mind. I'm thinking what in the world are preachers preaching if they're not opening the word of God I listen I am not smart enough to get up here and say one thing to you from my own ingenuity and creativity I am just not I know that I am hopeless and helpless but when i got this in my hand and in my heart and in my mind i can stand before you and say thus saith the lord god See, the only thing i have to say is what is in this right here we got to proclaim the truth of god Because it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth, that is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And only the gospel, only the gospel. We gotta proclaim, we gotta live transformed, and we gotta proclaim the truth. And number three, we gotta call up, equip, and unleash leaders. What is our trajectory? What must we be doing? We must be calling up, equipping and unleashing leaders. Now, I want to say something else, and I want to say this I want to say this humbly and passionately. I know that we have a, a growing reputation as a church that focuses on men and on calling men to leadership. I know that. A lot of that, uh, I just want to defer and say a lot of that is because of uh, hiring John Patton as a part-time men's pastor and his passion for that. Praise God for that. But the second statement is this. I don't apologize for that at all. I don't apologize for that at all, because I believe, ladies, the greatest thing that you need, if you're a wife, is you need a husband that loves you like Jesus, love the church and that sacrificially leads you like Jesus led the church. That the greatest thing I can do for the wives of this church and the greatest thing I can do for the children of this church is to call the husbands and the fathers to be who they need to be. That is the greatest impact that we can have. That does not mean in any way that we ignore the ladies. I'm not saying that at all. But men, and here's the other side of that. Unfortunately, it is so often the case that ladies are much more sensitive to the spiritual things of life and ready to be doing what they need to be doing. The men are lagging behind when they should be leading the charge. So, we need to call men up and equip them and unleash them to lead. And then those that are hearing the call of God to ministry. I have such a passion for this that we need to be sending out the call of God to those that will respond to his call to be a proclaimer of the truth, the preacher of the truth, to give their life to the call of being a pastor, being a preacher, and then that we would equip them and then send them out with the word of God burning brightly in their heart and saturated in their mind and falling off their lips because the word of God is what is going to transform this culture and transform hearts. And so what we must be doing is we must be giving an emphasis to the calling up, the equipping, and the unleashing of leaders who will pursue that. We're going to be taking another step in that direction here in the near future with a pilot program that's going to take place later this year of really coming alongside of and trying to equip and train up those who are being called to the ministry by actually offering an accredited curriculum here for a bachelor's degree in ministry and a master's degree in theology. We're going to do that through this church. This would be the hub, the centerpiece of the theological education of the people in this church that are called of God to a work in that we would equip them and resource them and send them out. We must be doing that. And then, finally, our strategy, two things. How will we advance is the question here. How will we advance? Number one, we will live out biblical community within life groups. That's where discipleship is going to take place most effectively. Listen, the one and of Scripture, the community phrases of Scripture. This one's mentioned 17 times, the overarching theme, love one another 17 times and then there's a bunch of other one another's that explain that this one is mentioned 3 times greet one another these four are mentioned twice serve one another bear with one another live in harmony with one another encourage one another each of the following is mentioned once be at peace with one another Outdo one another in showing honor, welcome one another, instruct one another, wait for one another, care for one another, comfort one another, agree with one another, bear one another's burdens, be kind to one another, forgive one another, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, submit to one another, teach and admonish one another, build up one another, always seek to do good to one another, exhort one another every day, stir up one another to love and good deeds, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, show hospitality to one another, be humble to one another, fellowship with one one another. Listen, how are you going to do all those one another's? You have to be with one another. It's the only way. Only in deep relationship are those things going to take place. Not on a Sunday morning with several hundred people. That's discipleship in action. We're going to be calling, continually calling people to get engaged in a life group, make it a part of their life, not a little slice of a compartment, but a part of their life as their identity. And then finally, how will we advance? Here's how. Through extraordinary unified intercessory prayer. Through extraordinary unified intercessory prayer. Right up stairs now, we have a prayer room that is designated, that is set up by one of the ladies in our church. Thank the Lord for her, who has given us a conducive environment so that during our services, prayer warriors in this church can go into that room and get on their faces before God and beg God to move in power throughout this building while our services are going on, that the Spirit of God would have freedom, the Spirit of God would transform lives, would speak whatever he needs to speak, would save souls, would grow people into greater Christ-likeness. I'm begging God that he would give us a room full of people every Sunday morning during every service that are up there interceding in extraordinary prayer for God to do a mighty work here. This church is only going to move forward on its knees. Praise God, we had three ladies up there for service that were praying during first service. I cannot tell you what that does for me when I get into the pulpit and I know that there is a group of people up there praying that God would send his spirit and power through this broken vessel to your hearts. I I know that I need it. Just know that I need it. Would you please stand? We're going to close this service with communion, celebrating, recognizing what Christ has done for us through His death on the cross, His broken body, spilled blood. If you're a believer, this is for you. If you're accepting Christ this morning for the first time, this is for you. As the bread and the juice are passed, you take that as it comes by and just remember the price that the Son of God paid for our salvation. Let's pray, Father, thank you. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your spirit. Ultimately, thank you for your Son and the great price that was paid as we take the Lord's Supper now together together. Lord, help us to reflect upon, remember your great sacrifice for our great salvation. In Christ's name I pray, amen.